This is the Venture Brothers Podcast, brought to you by Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn, and I'm joined as ever with my Venture Brothers Podcast co-host, Stephen Adwell. Um, And today's episode is Season 7, Episode 5, The Inamorata Consequence. Take Uh, it away. Sure. So, uh, let's start with the episode title... Uh, Inamorata uh, is a fancy word for a female lover, um, which I guess is a reference to the OSI agent and her run-in with the guild operative, um, although it's a little bit tenuous. Like, it sounds like a spy movie, you know, title. So Yeah, yeah, and there are references to James Bond movies in this. Yeah, not a lot, though. Um, True. So, the episode starts with Team Venture driving cross-country, all wearing gas masks. Uh, which is a little confusing at first, because they don't really explain why they're doing that, but gets, you know, cleared up later. So, uh, Hank and Dean reference uh, GTA Vice City, which means that they're ten years off uh, their video games. Uh, GTA by Vice City? Uh, Grand Theft Auto? Yeah, yeah. GTA... Uh, Grand Theft Auto Vice City uh, came out in, like, 2002-2003. And, like, you know, we're now on Grand Theft Auto 5. So... Mm. And it's been a while since Grand Theft Auto 5. Well, Um, we know when this was written, then. Yeah. um, Well, it's also, I imagine, just they have very old video game systems. Um, Because that's kind of a thing with them. Like, just old tech. That's true. Um, So, Rusty references instead Mad Max, because he comes from that generation. Uh, while tinkering with a speech. Um, The uh, venture team stop for Brock to throw a cow off the road, except that it turns out that it's a uh, rubber cow and that this is an OSI uh, ambush slash checkpoint. I guess a rubber cow was just a new iteration of a caltrop, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And this is where, like, when you see a lot of the OSI agents have those, like, full bodysuits with with um, sort of uh, plastic uh, face mask things. Um, I was like, this is a reference to something, I just don't remember. It's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Because mm. uh, there they also use um, uh, contamination and like some sort of um, some like airborne contagion killing animals as a way to warn people off of the like secret alien um research base. And that also makes sense thematically in the sense that what we find that we're approaching is the Venture Brothers compound that had been burned I guess, how long ago according to the show? Uh, Sometime. Several, I mean uh, about, I would say maybe three months to a year? I think it would have to be a year. Um, But because, I mean, they've been... So they they moved to from the Venture Compound when it all went to hell to JJ's mm-hmm. uh, New York pad. So this was where they were living previously. Um, anyway. But, but what I'm saying, though, is, is that they left a place oh, a yeah, while yeah. ago. They hasn't really had real recovery on it so there's no i mean there's actually like a safety reason that you would want to have filtered air because lord knows what kind of chemicals got burned up when that place went down well they dropped that like a hot potato um you know once we go to the after credits and we see that uh this is actually a summit between uh, the osi and the guild hosted at the venture compound um and this is where the references start to come very thick and fast so ilana Explain to us the glories that is Carvel ice cream. So Carvel ice cream is a um, really East Coast cheap ice cream chain that does go back generations and generations. Um, they basically invented soft serve, so the story goes. And um, they also had a great number of uh, TV advertisements you stretching back again for decades and decades and the TV advertisements always looked like they had been made at an earlier time um fudgy the whale they would always suggest that you should get fudgy the whale for father's day it was never quite explained why fudge and whales equaled father's day but they did that 
And interesting that they gave the Father's Day ice cream cake for an episode which, like so much of the show, is really focused on the characters' relationships to their fathers. Um, there's also a fun callback to Fudgy the Whale when there, um, there's a fake ad for Carvel ice cream that shows up later in the show, which does represent a real contest that you can enter. We have some details for that we'll share later. Um, but the show periodically has done a lot of weird sort of marketing tie-ins that feel very out of time, and this is another one of those. Uh, I And um, I also, uh, from the recent season of um, MST3K, they had a competition to determine all the different thematic holiday ice cream cakes you could make based on the outline of the Fudgy the Whale cake. Uh, none of them had suggested Brock Sampson's head, but now we know that that's a valid option. Right, and we should explain that um, uh, all of these cakes, including Fudgy the Whale, are ice cream cakes. Yes, it's ice cream cakes. That's It's by Carvel Ice Cream, the soft serve company. Um... And I guess one of the one of the weird things was that uh, the two-headed um, uh, guild of calamitous intent, dragoon, and uh, red mantle um, have never heard of or seen ice cream cake before. Yeah, they must have been underground for quite some time. Well, what's what's I mean, this is like the kind of the back and forth that they do sometimes with these characters, sometimes with other characters. Is like they've made very detailed pop culture references before. So, like they're they're, I mean maybe they just weren't East Coast adjacent, uh, but it, it is strange that like you know ice cream cake is fairly, I would think universal. I don't know. It struck me as just kind of like, um, but it was funny. Um, so elsewhere in the reception. Uh, Dean tries to uh, impress Dr. Mrs. the Monarch with uh, college talk, and she tells him that uh, he should join a fraternity, namely uh, Gamma Delta Phi, because he's a legacy, because I think his father or grandfather mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, founded right it. What's strange is I, I googled Gamma Delta Phi, I mean, not being a, a frat person at all. Gamma Phi Delta. Gamma Phi Delta, sorry. Um, Here you can see, like, that's how much I'm not into this stuff. I can't keep it straight. Uh, It's apparently a real-life sorority, so, like, I'm not sure whether she was messing with him or whether just in this universe. I just don't think they Googled it, so Uh, that's just a string. I also imagine there's not a lot of, I mean, you know, there's a lot of fraternities, and there's only so many three-letter Greek alphabet combinations. And we know that the fraternity is where Brock Sampson met Rusty. Wait, weren't they? No, they were roommates. Yeah, but they were that if they were roommates it's because they were in a fraternity together. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. They were they were assigned roommates cuz um Rusty's previous roommate left. It, it was a dorm thing. But if they were fraternity if they but they would have been in the same fraternity if they were living together. I I don't think that Rusty was actually in a fraternity. Huh. He seemed to be living in the dorms, um, as opposed to in a. Fr- I mean, there's there's frat members who don't get to live in the frat house, but you think if you're you know the son of the guy who invented it, um, that you would get a space in the house. Uh, anyway, so meanwhile, uh, Shoreleave, Phantom Limb, and Brock Sampson talk about Bond guns. Uh, apparently, the gun in. Um, Shoot, was it from Russia with Love? Yes. Or, okay, thank you. Uh, was a BB gun and not a real gun, which kind of weirds them out. Um, and this was one of those moments, like, there's always some moments in Venture Brothers that, like, sound more like uh, public hammer conversations than necessarily, like, something that could only come out of the, the scenario. Um, and this, like, to me, this flagged up as one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we then find out that uh, Rust- the reason why Rusty is hosting this event is because his dad hosted the first one and he doesn't want to be shown up by his dad, which sort of sets the thematic wheels in motion for this episode. Um, so after a bit of, of mingling, uh, Watch and Ward, who are dressed up in like 
19th century naval costumes. Um, uh, I should say early 19th century naval costumes. Uh, announce first, second, and then third bell, and then start off the, the formal session. And I have to say, like, this did not ring a bell. Uh, I wasn't exactly sure what they were referencing. Yeah, I mean, they said it was a bell, and that ships do use bells to keep time. Yeah, so. uh, but I like. I was thinking, is this a, um, like, is this a you know navy tradition thing? Is this a marines? Like, it it felt like a reference to something. Um. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we then go to um, the formal session of the second treaty of tolerance. Um, I love the banner that said "Welcome Animosity Coalitions." Um, which, you know, <laughs> is just a wonderful term. So, on one side, we have uh, Dragoon slash Red Mantle, Dr. Mrs. the Monarch, who's actually labeled as such. Um, so, her official title is Dr. Mrs. the Monarch. Um, and Phantom Lim as the council's representatives. I really love their craftwork suits. I, I was just like the red shirt, black tie, very fitted. They're, they're, they're definitely come out of a German industrial band. Yes, Dr. Mrs. the Monarch especially uh, pulled it off. Although I did like that uh, Phantom Limb apparently coordinates his domino eye masks with his suit. I mean, we all should, really. Yeah. Um, on the other side, uh, we have uh, Hunter Gathers, uh, Brock Samson, Sergeant Snoopy, who is... Um, uh, played by John Hodgman. Yes, Shoreleaf. Um, and Sergeant Snoopy is actually a character we've seen earlier, just in the background, being an OSI member. I think. Yeah, he I mean, prob- he's been in a couple episodes. He's usually like the tech guy. Yeah, he he's been in the background. I don't know that we've ever had his name before, but I definitely think that it's a reference to <sighs> when Dukakis was running for president and trying to shore up his uh, military bona fides in the eyes of a public that would never believe he had any no matter what he did um, because they didn't even believe John Kerry had any in spite of the fact that he actually was a noted you know war hero um, the uh, he they had like a whole photo session where uh, Michael Dukakis posed in a tank and the critical response to him posing in a tank was that he looked like Snoopy in a tank so if there's a character named Snoopy who's in a military position, my brain just went immediately to that whole thing with Dukakis in a tank. Ah, okay. Um, so you also learn that... Um, <laughs> I don't know how, but for some reason, the Guild of Calamitous Intent and OSI have a real thing, Jus Tractarum, which is the right to make treaties... Uh, which is something normally given only to governmental organizations. Hmm. So that suggests, I mean, you know, I'm always sort of on the lookout for, you know, how did um, the sort of world of, you know, super science and and uh, superheroism, like, actually change the world compared to ours? And that's a big one. Like, that suggests that these things are considered quasi-governmental organizations at the very least. And they've come off that way, I think. Yeah, I mean, they've certainly, you know, OSI being a, um, you know, shield G.I. Joe equivalent, like, that makes them part of the, you know, U.S. slash vaguely defined international military. Um, uh, so I, I also love uh, Watch and Ward slash uh, Shoreleave giving the titles of the various... Um, members, so we learn that Phantom Lim insists on being called the um, the victor of Cemetery Creek, which is the season... Cremation Creek. Sorry, Cremation Creek, which is, I believe, the season two finale? Yeah. Um, even though he very definitively lost that one. Um, uh, that battle. Um, Dr. Mrs. the Monarch is... Uh, acknowledged as the so- the uh, slayer of the sovereign um, and apparently um, uh, uh, excuse me Red Mantle uh, signed a famous like wrote the guild bylaws 
um, which they had referenced before, so I kind of like that as someone who's had to write bylaws. Um, and Shoreleave, on the other hand, wants to emphasize that he has a body like Arnold and a face like Denzel. <laughs> Um, so Dean decides to wander off, uh, during Rusty's really dry, self-important opening speech. Um, and an OSI agent who I initially mistook as Hunchman 21, but who's in fact Dermot, decides to grab Hank. And I think, um, I don't know about you, Alana, but, like, I feel that the audience's feelings towards Dermot are going to color a lot of this episode. Yeah. I I think this is the perfect placement for him, though. Like, what else... Where else, what else could Dermot possibly be? And he wasn't going to just completely, exi- you know, evaporate from the world, so... Yeah, I mean, I thought, it, you know, it, it very neatly wrapped up um, his storyline, so, like, we know what he's up to, and we know how his sort of story ends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the other hand, like, I don't know, I'm always kind of 50-50 on Dermot, in part because I think he is such the chicken shit teenager that, like, all of us secretly fear that we actually were. That, like, he gives everyone that sort of, like, anxiety, mm-hmm. <laughs> almost. You know, it's, it's, it's funny, but it's still, it's cringe humor. It's a gross-out feeling, right? But it's that it's so realistic. Oh, like, absolutely. Every conversation he has is something I've heard someone say. So Okay. Um, so here we get the sort of... Um, another part of the uh, narrative where the, you know, uh, various sort of grunts and hench people are cleaning up after the buffet... And two operatives uh, find love and decide to patrol the compound. And these are the two um, operatives who we saw at the end of last season. The woman from OSI and the guy from uh, Guild of Caleba Disintent who um, found each other staking out the roof together and pledged that they would always remember each other. Uh, And it was really sweet. Um, So her name is Kimberly McManus and... I think she's sort of like a mixture of Sigourney Weaver in Aliens and Kelly McGillis from Top Gun. Um, She just has this like 80s woman military look to her. Ah, okay, good. Because I was um, slightly worried that it was like a vaguely like that the joke is that she's mannish. I mean... That was the joke in terms of, like, the reveal of, like, oh, this voice actually was coming from a woman. And, like, that was a joke that the show has done a lot. But, no, I think that that's not really what it's being set up as is here. Um, Whereas on the other side, uh, S464's joke is that uh, he's got a plastic dome on the top of his head uh, that reveals his brain. For reasons that we don't really understand. So um, Hank and Dermot do a very elaborate handshake greeting, the kind that kids work out. The, ooh, excuse me. Uh, the kind that kids work out with their friends as like their secret greeting, like high five, down low, behind, forward, and it just really emphasizes to you that this really was Dean's, sorry, Hank's first and only friend. Um, this was like the first kid he had a real actual friendship with that wasn't somebody he was related to. And so they kind of have that childhood closeness that uh, seems a little bit too young for them in the circumstances, but it makes sense because they didn't get to express those feelings elsewhere. Um, and uh, meanwhile, we see Dean and he is trudging through the woods alone, which is always a good idea. Uh, where he encounters the house that we saw last at the Very Venture Halloween special a couple years ago. He goes to the house, knocks on the door, and he meets a red helper unit, uh, which we find is later named H-E-L-P little E-R. So it's like helper-er, model two, voiced by New Zealand comic actor Rise Darby, who you may recall from Flight of the Concords. 
um, or things from we do in the shadows. Things we do in the shadows. God, he's such a funny, talented actor, and he does such a great he does such great work in this. Yeah, and I think he even contributed to the script because there's a couple like very specific New Zealand references. Oh, I'm uh, sure then that I think you know. I mean, in part because like he does sort of have a little bit of a improv background i think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so that makes sense um uh, so meanwhile um we go back to the summit and this is where i start having um contract negotiation flashbacks <laughs> as uh, the guild and osi fight over uh guild regulations on enforcement uh when like arching situations go wrong where the OSI wants more staff on the scene to contain incidents, and the guild wants the good guys to... Excuse me, I shouldn't use that term. Mm-hmm. Um, wants uh, better regulations for protagonists, uh, because they argue that they, they OSI does not police its own uh, sufficiently harshly. Um, Isn't it strange, though, that they are okay with the o- with OSI side's folks being referred to as protagonists, because... Everyone is the protagonist in their own story. So, like, can you imagine leaning into the idea that you are actually not the protagonist or the antagonist? Yeah, that's it's, worse than saying that you're the bad guy. I think it, it's kind of weird, and we'll discuss that when like they actually talk about good guy and bad guy as like slurs. Um, but I think it has to do with a very complex like self conception of the guild of calamitous intent. Um, meanwhile, Rusty is having trouble with gender neutral terms. Yeah, he keeps referring to the group of people present as gentlemen, even though it includes Dr. and Mrs. the Monarch. So my pro tip from folks um, who have been subject to these sorts of things is if you mess up uh, your gender terms for someone or for a group of people, just correct yourself and keep going. Don't make a big thing over it. Don't say that it doesn't matter because it does matter. Don't spend 50 minutes apologizing because that just makes the person who you uh, wronged feel like even more like there's a big spotlight on them just say oh sorry i meant and keep on moving and don't be that asshole who says that it doesn't matter because it does um my favorite part of this scene is uh hunter gathers goes on an escalating don't tell me it's blank when you're actually doing blank so don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining don't kick me in the crotch and tell me that my underwear is too tight. And then it ends with Charlie saying, don't shove your hand up my ass and tell me you're Jim Henson. Which yeah, just, oh, that beautiful. line got me good. And I just felt like that whole list of sayings felt very Hunter S. Thompson to me, which is, you know, who oh, he's yeah. a character from. So for me, that was like just really good tonal humor. Right. Uh, so meanwhile, with Dean, he learns that the helper units uh, were a mass-marketed domestic appliance of Dr. Jonas Venture Seniors back in the 50s. Um, And this is where I start to get, like, Fallout um, flashbacks uh, that were pulled from the market on a consumer safety scare. Uh, And what I love about this is, like, just to show you the detail work that that our our creators go to... um, they actually, like, rather than just doing recipsa loquitur, they actually wrote out newspapers that were, like, only on screen for a second and spinning, which are really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I highly suggest, like, track them down, take a read, because uh, they clearly spent a little bit of time, like, working on those jokes. Um, so, yeah, what did you think of, of the fact that, um, you know... <laughs> I just love that they got taken off the market because they're a choking hazard. Um, I really think that uh, that particular that particular moment in public safety history happened in the 70s, which is after the time that this show would posit it happened. But uh, there really is like choking hazards are like one of the only things that you can use to get something taken off the market for safety. There's so little consumer safety taken into regard, but choking hazards for babies, which frankly everything could be, is 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 one way. So contact the Federal Trade Commission if you have any concerns. Um, so we also learn that um, the character of uh, what? Where's Ben? 
Ben is in New Zealand. Um, he's in New Zealand, and he's going. Uh, he's he, you know he was a scientist who was living in their old yard. I, I had to really take a Google and to see who he was because I had completely forgotten. He looks like the dude from um, uh, that Coen Brothers movie from the, the yeah, Big Lebowski. Lebowski. Thank you. Uh, yeah, he's off surfing in New Zealand, and I, I um, don't really know. And and not just like New Zealand in general, but a very specific tourist town in New Zealand, which is why like my head went to oh Rice Darby wrote this line because I doubt anyone who's like not a native New Zealander or like spent a lot of time there would necessarily pull that one off the dome. Yeah, it's it's um it was just a bit confusing for me. Like I, I you know, I, I have a podcast about the darn show and even I was struggling to remember. Like I knew we'd seen that house before. I knew that that house was connected to the story of it being revealed that the Venture Brothers are clones, but I felt like this was the one time the season where I really thought that there was pieces of the show's history that weren't quite being recalled in ways to make the scene super legible to the viewer. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that was deliberate just because the cloning thing comes so late in this particular story arc that, like, they didn't want to step on their own reveal, maybe? Uh, anyway, so... Um, I I started to get the sense that this helper unit was a little bit off because it just starts like asking for or sorry it starts offering like more and more weird services uh, culminating with uh, warmed up sweatpants Um, anyway but you know I think I was ultimately wrong about that we then cut back to the uh, summit where uh, Phantom Limb and Shore Leave are fighting it out uh, with flippers on their hands and uh, pool rings around their waists. It's such a funny image. Um, it, 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 like, especially with Phantom Limb's ghost limbs, right? Um, I enjoy that Shoreleave is saying, not the face. This is what brings all the boys to the yard because he would completely be making a Kelly, a Kellis, uh, reference in the year of our Lord 2018. Um, yeah. No, then that was good. I really think that the show like cuts like right before you see the two guys jump into action at each other. And it just shows you how much the show is like, yeah, we're not really invested in showing you a fight scene. We're, we're going to show you the negotiations these two guys fighting each other with like silly pool accoutrements in their bodies is funny, but it's not the point of the show. We're going to spend our time on negotiations and people having fantasies about their youth and conversations about where they come from. Yeah. And it's, it's not like the show hasn't been like, hasn't done like action scenes or weird action scenes. This, well, like this wasn't, they, they wanted to save some money. Mm-mm. Well, they might be because <laughs> they wanted to save some money because they always run out of budget. Um, but it felt more like a deliberate uh, undercutting of tension. That is yeah. like, rather than show you a big exciting fight scene, let's shift from that to Hank and Dean climbing a mountain of coats. Uh, last scene in the music video um, uh, of their band, which I'm forgetting the name. Of. Uh, oh, sorry, Shallow Gravy. The band is yeah, Shallow Gravy. Hank and Dermot. Sorry, i Shallow Gravy. And their their single was Jean was about was jackets, about right. all the kinds of jackets that you can have. Um, so I guess they actually built that mountain for the video and never did anything with it. Uh, so we then learn in the process as they're climbing up and talking that Dermot doesn't still does not have military training, um, just a black belt from a local rec center. Yeah, they said it was like something uh sensei rosenberg and all i could think of was tiger shulman which is actually the most popular new york based martial arts school for like uh-huh. it's like it's like for families and children of all ages like that kind of marketing gotcha um that does feel very dermot too to like be into martial arts but only in the like laziest bullshittiest way possible um so we then learn that dermot got into the osi by getting Rusty to put a good word in for him, 
which he did in return for Dermot keeping his mouth shut about their relationship, which is to say, Rusty is actually Dermot's father, Hank and Dermot are half-siblings, and the reason why Rusty um, wants him to keep his mouth shut about it is that, uh, you know, uh, his conception was also statutory rape. So he doesn't want to be on the wrong side of the law. And beyond illegality, I just don't think that Rusty Venture wants to have to acknowledge that he has another kid that he has to look out for and pay for and be a parent to. He doesn't want to have to do that extra emotional work of parenting for this other kid, especially not for a kid who he views as kind of being a loser and less intellectual. Yeah. I mean, possibly one of Rusty's lowest moments, morally speaking. He's got a lot of them, but... And then he and then he still hasn't let Dean know. It's really heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, and I think Hank um, erased his own memory. Mm-hmm. Because um, he technically slept with Dermot's sister-slash-mom. Um... So the two agents show up in the, I guess it's a hangar or warehouse or something, Mm -hmm. uh, and they hide. Uh, Dean shows the Red Helper uh, videos of the other helper. He explains that uh, the helper that we know is um, a prototype who is actually more intelligent than the uh, assembly line models, and that he himself is technically a cyborg. Uh, he's got some sort of human inside him, which is terrifying. Which is interesting because if you recall, I think like season two or season one, there's a whole thing where there's a haunted room because Doc Venture used parts of a tiny part of an orphan to... <laughs> yes, the heart of an orphan child. The heart of an orphan child to power something that he'd made. So there's a long legacy of that here. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like one of the ways in which they're doing... Um, a venture like the what the negative side of the whole super science thing is is that it's always like damaging you know it's it's exploiting slash like you know mutilating the bodies of less powerful people um speaking of which uh helper tells uh dean that he's a clone dean of course already knows but um Helper doesn't know that he know knows. But no, no, he, correction. Helper assumed that he knew, and then Dean was confused because he wasn't sure what he was referring no, 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 to. And then oh, right. he said, oh, you mean that we're clones? Yes, I know that we're clones. Right, and then uh, Helper sort of uh, freaked and, and was like doing the, how many fingers am I holding up? You're hallucinating. Because he... he, he um, this was all a dream. Yeah, and Dean explains, like, no, he's actually okay with it. Um, and we, we, I tried, we tried to pull that on my friend's mom once when we got home after curfew. We like literally did the like, <laughs> we're not really here. You can't see us. And she never mentioned it again. So I think it works. <laughs> okay. Uh, and here we, I think we get the like thesis statement of the episode where he says that, you know, the two of them, quote, created uh, by great men out of love and guilt, we are second chances. Um which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, you wrote that you think it sounds like a thesis statement, really, for the show. I mean, at least for the episode, but definitely, you know, I think it plays into all kinds of, like, key, like, you know, series-long themes. And I'll, we'll get you back know, to the second chance I mean, case in a little bit. Yeah, I mean, certainly, like, we know that with Dean, because, you know, Hank and Dean, like, dying as often as they did, like, you know... All of them Clearly. are literally a second attempt to have a functioning child, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, Helper is more interesting. I wonder if we're going to find out, like, what that was about exactly? Like, what human parts were in him? Oh, I think we know at the end of the episode. Oh, God. I hadn't thought that, but let's let's get back to yeah. that. Um, so, meanwhile... It seems like we find out that the two agents are planning a mind control coup of both sides. Yeah, and as we learn that, we see what is revealed to be a fantasy sequence. Um, 
Hank pops up with a flame-throwing gun, and he totally Guitar. is wearing a Robert Plant outfit. I recognize from the song "Remains the Same" uh, Led Zeppelin video. He's definitely channeling his hero's own hero, Robert Plant. Um, and he jumps onto like a Disney-style dragon that looks like it's Pete's dragon from the movie Pete's Dragon. Yeah, and that's where I was like in dream sequence. Like I realized we were in dream sequence because I was like, okay, I could buy Hank like rustling around in the coat pile and coming up with some weird outfit and a fire throwing guitar because those are things that could plausibly be in like the venture compound. But I was like, okay, the dragon. This like okay, we're in his <laughs> mind here. Yeah. Um, speaking of weird references, uh, he imagines that his date is quote forever 19-year-old Dominic, Dominique Dawes, who is a famous uh, U.S. Olympian who uh, was uh, a gold medalist at Atlanta in 1999 when she was... Ni- uh, excuse me, 1996 when she was 19. Um, that really I had to, like, Google pretty hard for because I, first of all, didn't hear the name very well. Um... And her character model doesn't really particularly resemble what she looked like at the time, so I was a bit confused. Um, anyway, the dragon's head gets chopped off, and we go from there to um, Hank and Dean. Um, Hank sorry, and Dermot. Han- yeah, God, I keep doing that. Uh, Hank and Dermot um, are watching the two agents make out. And Hank and Dermot argue over uh, the semantics of the base system, uh, and specifically what it means if you flip the genders um, in terms of active and passive uh, partner. And this is also where we get what initially I thought was just a really juvenile joke, because the female agent uh, freaks out because of what we hear as a PP belt. Which I was just like, what? Really? Come on. That's, that's like, beneath you guys. Really? Um, but we'll, we learn later it has another meaning. So we get back to the summit, and this is where we really have the characters arguing over definitions and identities. Um, the mad scientists, are they mad scientists? Always going to be on the uh, Guild of Calamitous side? Are they are they the antagonists? And there's a quote like, no, not angry scientists. They're mentally ill scientists. Like, how do you define that? Um, and they begin to talk about using terms like good guys and bad guys as slurs. Is it a slur to identify somebody as being a bad guy? And these are actually concepts that I don't feel like the show has really touched on before. Specifically yeah. that. I mean, so a, a couple things that, like, came to mind. Number one, given the shit that, like, Jonas Venture got up to, I think it is pretty, like, bold-faced to say that, like, mad scientists... I mean, maybe the, the subtextual argument is maybe he wasn't a good guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, for Hunter Gathers to just, like, blithely say that, like, mad scientists are all... I mean, you know, his ex-boss got turned into a Hulk to try to cure prostate cancer. Like, weird shit happens over on the quote-unquote good guy side. Um, The other thing about the, like, good guy, bad guy is slur. So, the guild has always had this thing of, like, on the one hand, having a kind of a rebel image. Like, clearly part of the thing for a lot of... um, uh, what they call them, uh, professional costumed antagonists, is that, like, they like being, in some ways, like, rebels. They like being anti-authoritarian, or anti-authority. Um, they don't like people that they think are goody two-shoes. They like, sort of, fucking with people that they think are too, you know, uh, think that they're too good. Um, but I guess, like, you know, thinking about it for a second... Maybe it's the sort of, um, the thing where, you know, I'm not the bad guy, you're really, you know, you're really the bad guy. Or, you know, you think you're so good, you're not actually so good. So, I don't know, maybe it's that. Hmm. I mean, 
I think that to an extent you have a team that is wearing white and blue and American colors and therefore wants to be branded and associated with as being the good guys and another team is wearing black and red and is going to frame itself as being like the badasses. So having having real Hunter S. Thompson define things such a way would be completely at odds with him. But having the fictional Hunter S. Thompson who works for a militarized organization say, no, my side are the good guys with the full firmness and belief that he must be right is, yeah, sounds sounds about right. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it it makes sense for Nick Fury to definitely say that. Mm -hmm. Um, Hunter Thompson himself was a bit more countercultural. Yeah, Um, but also would just challenge the existence of categories of that nature. And I was also going to say, like, if we think about the cultural touchstones who are part of the guild, right? Mm -hmm. David Bowie, you know, Iggy Pop. It's Rebels. Yeah, it's 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 people who who you know deconstructed cultural categories. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and then Brock complains about oh how come how can we have to be PC? And I just had to think that was a little bit of a nod of the head to the fact that voice actor of Brock Simpson, Patrick Warburton, is a right wing guy. Oh, say it in so. Oh my God, yes, it's like a known thing. Oh dear. Well, you know, like I you. It's always funny, like, you know that about certain celebrities and then not necessarily about others. Mm-hmm. So, like, I knew about the Baldwin, I knew about James Woods, but I didn't know about this. Yeah, sorry, Oh, man. that's sad. Yeah. Um, Shore Leave uh, claims that he's going to smize the competition, which uh, is a reference to uh, one of the ta- catchphrases from Tyra Banks from America's Next Top Model, which means smiling using your eyes. Yes, terms I know only through my brother, my brother, and me, who are big fans of America's Top Model. Well, you know, he was smizing. Um, <laughs> he really did do that. And then it's back to some more yelling. Um, and we have a scene where Dean is leading Helper through the woods, and it's got this sort of like E.T. feeling. Where, yeah. you know, you've got the little kid and he's leading his alien friend through the woods and trying to help them escape, um, trying to get him out into the world. It kind of reminded me of like E.T. and Stranger Things, but also a little bit about Over the Garden Wall as well. Um, but the uh, which is an amazing, brilliant cartoon show that you should drop everything and watch the entirety of right now if you haven't. It's the perfect show to watch in fall. Very autumnal Over the Garden Wall. Anyway, um uh, yeah, but the Red Helper, or Helper, or as I like to think of him, uh, wants to go home. He is too frightened and thinks that there might be religious extremists who would stone him to death because whatever book it is they believe, tell them that they should. Yeah, because robots aren't in the Bible. No. Um, I actually, I thought that was really interesting because, you know, like, normally it's presented as, like, you know, the outside world is freedom, it's truth, um... You know, and you just need to, you know, have, you know, confidence and spread your wings, etc. And here, I thought, like, they kind of made an interesting argument. Like, no, the outside world is kind of shit. Um, you know, and Netflix is great. Um, and he wants to stay there and watch his Netflix, which he has now. Yeah, um, and he gives, um, he gives Dean, like... Of all the things, a recommendation to watch Skins, um, which is just such a funny, like, choice of things. Skins is a how would you describe? Like, it's it's a teen sort of soap opera drama um, that is most famous for just sort of like frankly depicting uh, teen drug use and and sexuality and having a bunch of. Um, like uh, Game of Thrones actors when they were young. Um, so Yeah, and I think they might have chosen the show also as a joke about how long it takes for shows to get to New Zealand. Yeah, um, and also maybe uh, <laughs> shades of their own issues with Netflix, uh, just because the Venture Brothers used to be on Netflix and then got yanked off and oh. is a little bit hard to get at... Uh, um, streaming ones. Huh, I wonder. Um, But yeah, like, the idea that he actually has all he needs in his house separated away from mankind and that he, it's it's actually safer for him to stay at home. And I mean, I think in uh, in the political climate, it makes you wonder if they're talking about how they might feel right now. Yeah, I just wanted to check out. 
Um, so we go from there to the agents arguing about the belt. Uh, we still don't know um, what that really is about yet. Um, but the guild, the guild guy uh, S four six four reveals that uh, he doesn't have emotions anymore because his amygdala was rerouted through his cerebral cortex. Which, uh, as someone who still remembers a little bit of his neurobio, I found a little bit strange. Uh, because, so, the the amygdala uh, does indeed have a, um, a central role in human emotions. Uh, if you uh, know the um, story about the, um, the guy who got the railroad spike through his head and mm-hmm. lived, uh, that's the part of his brain that got wiped out, so it created emotional instability. Um, but the strange thing is is that the cerebral cortex uh, is like... I, I don't understand why rewiring your amygdala through your cerebral cortex uh, would not cause you to experience emotions, because the cerebral cortex deals with stuff like memory, attention, perception, cognition, awareness, thought, language, and consciousness, according to Wikipedia, because I needed to refresh... Um, but, uh, you know, I would think that certainly awareness, thought, and consciousness, like that he'd still, maybe he's only aware of his emotions in a sort of logical sense, like he, he recognizes that they exist, but he doesn't feel, feel them. Yeah, that's a possibility, actually. My only connection to the amygdala is, of course, the Batman villain. Um, and the, uh, horrifying, uh, Bloodborne villain, too. Mm. Um... But when yes, yeah, so, but going back to the goodbye that Helper uh, has with uh, Russ. Oh, sorry. Uh, before that, um, so the resolution of that particular storyline is that Hank and Dermot, I got it right for once, uh, decide that they're going to deal with this in a particularly uh, them way. They're going to tattle. Yeah, it feels right. Um, so yes, in on the way out when he's. Saying uh, uh, helper or is saying goodbye to to um, Dean. Dean, and it, it feels really sad. I, I I really I really would like to have this character be revisited. Um, as he closes the door, he says, "Like it's nice." To, what does he say? Like it's nice to meet you, Rusty, or something like that. Right, and this is when everyone's minds exploded. Yes, you can see that Dean's mind is exploding. Our minds are exploding, and we all realize that Rusty's a clone too. Which is one of those, like, really great twists because, uh, as people pointed out, it's something that, like, absolutely makes complete sense once you've heard it. Because, yeah, his drag, his, his dad dragged him into all kinds of horrifically dangerous situations. Of course, Rusty would, like, run into some of the same situations that Hank and Dean did and suffer the physical consequences. But at the same time, oh my god, I mean, what a, you know, that changes so much about the relationship between all the characters and also what we think of all the characters. And my thought about Rust is about Helper-er is I think that part of Rusty Venture is in Helper-er. And that's why Helper-er really wanted to help take care of Hank. Sorry, of Dean. But he doesn't know that he's Rusty? No, I, I he might know that he's rusty. He says that they have certain things in common. Ah, but I mean, he to... calls Dean Rusty. So... Yes, exactly. Hmm. He thinks that he's talking to Rusty, and he also he also. But he doesn't knows... recognize that's that's he doesn't see that as talking to himself. No, because well, I mean, he's obviously not literally talking to himself. Okay. He hmm. helperer is aware that the human parts of its body are from clones of Rusty or, like, dead parts oh, of Rusty. Oh, I see, I see, I see. But it doesn't so, necessarily identify as Rusty. Right, exactly, because he's okay. parts of him, not the whole thing. Gotcha. But that also... That's, I, I, I hadn't thought of that. That's pretty dark. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why he wants to take such good care of Rusty, is he wants to... He, he sees him as being family, like, literally. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, we go from there That's just to- so heartbreaking. Yeah, I, it is. I really love Helper and want him. I want him to be have connection to more people. And I'm curious if you know if uh, Dean will decide to share the truth with his dad. 
yeah, it's interesting because, like, in their own ways, like, I've always been interested about Hank and Dean, um, like, how much they decide to tell the truth and how much they decide to hide. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's another thing, like, that their dad has hidden stuff from them, so it's a very Venture-esque thing to do. Because um, I don't remember if, if Dean actually tells Hank that they're clones. Uh, I don't think he did. Uh, anyway, so... Oh, wow. And likewise, um, Hank didn't tell Dean that, because uh, he wiped his mind, about you know, oh, no, no, Dermot no. being their half-brother. Hank knows they're clones, because he's made jokes about it. Oh, right, right. Okay, sorry. They, they, they lined up all the clones of them out to get squished. Right, right. Okay, never mind. Um, damn, that was going to be a really great point. Anyway, so uh, we go from there to the summit is exhausted and childish, and this is where Rusty realizes that they're children, that, like, the origins of all of their, like, self-important ritual is literally that their dad, like, had them slap fight. You know, that sorry, that his dad had the two-side slap fight back in the day uh, because that's how he dealt with conflicts between children. Uh, and his response to them is, like, newsflash, my dad's a shitty parent. And his, like, solution instead was... Um, he argues for uh, compromise rather than fairness. That he basically says, look, you know, negotiation, you never get everything you want. Um, so it's better to go back and tell your own sides that you, you know, you got the other side over on a barrel and you got this, that, and the other thing, then you get nothing. What do you think about this? Well, I mean, I think that that's a pretty standard take on these things. Um, and I think that that's a pretty legitimate thing for him to say in the context of the show. But I had a hard time not reading that as also being political metaphor. And I don't accept that as a reasonable political metaphor for the world right now, since we're dealing with actual Nazis. But I wasn't sure. Like, did you feel like that was intended as a political metaphor? I don't know. Because the thing is, like, in the context of collective bargaining, like, I kind of agree. It's just, you know, it's it like you're not literally going to get everything that you want. Um, I mean, in terms of the political... I I guess it depends on, like, when was this episode written, right? Because post-2016, you know, I I agree with you. Like, I I think it it misreads uh, the situation uh, in a pretty fundamental way. Uh, But if this was written, like, during the Obama years, like, there's maybe... It's not as egregious because I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it still does come off as like a typical centrist. Yup, and especially when all Obama did was compromise, and look what that got us. Yeah. So I mean, I I my my thing is mm, this is bad political analysis. It's reasonable political analysis in the world of the show. I don't know if it's intended as political analysis at all on the part of the creators, frankly. But it struck me that it might be. So then Rusty kind of ruins... Right in with your thoughts, by the way, folks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry, go uh, ahead. So Rusty decide, then kind of like... The moment that I thought he's actually found some sort of like maturity, uh, he immediately um, kind of ruins it by like getting all petty about his dad and being like, Ha! I was even better than my dad! Like, he could never top that. I mean, what's, in- what's interesting here, though, is we do see Rusty do be successful at something, like, for the first time ever, really. And it's not science. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a different kind of role he should be playing then. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that uh, I-, I read in the reviews is that they point out that, like, Rusty, in part just because he's been in this world for so long... You know, he's always kind of had this attitude of, like, realizing the essential ridiculousness of the whole, you know, organized aggression thing. And so, in some ways, like, he's a really good fit for this role. You know, Mm -hmm. that he can sort of... Because he's a little bit outside, but also deeply inside. Um, That's an interesting thought. Like, Rusty as a super mediator. I don't know. Yep. Yep. Just because um, just because your dad told you you had to do science doesn't mean that you have to do science. Right. Um, speaking of which, uh, Rusty then... Uh, sorry, Dean and Rusty meet up, and uh, even though, you know, there's a sort of whole joke about 
the fact that, you know, Dean missed the whole thing, but, like, he still absorbed the same lessons. Um, and the intersections, basically, we have more in common than we realized. Um, meaning, uh, Dean and Rusty. Um, and that, you know, Jonas Venture Sr. was, like, even worse than Rusty. That, like, as negligent and, like, emotionally unavailable and everything else that, um, that Rusty is, that, like, he's not as bad as Jonas Venture, and that he tries more, and that he at least acknowledges his own... Limitations. Limitations and flaws and mistakes, much more than Jonas Venture and ever did. what I love is that they, they, ha- they have this whole conversation in front of the famous statue of Jonas Sr. holding Rusty in his arms. Right. It's um, like this perfect visual. Yeah, so that was one of my favorite parts of the episode. Where oh like, yes, absolutely. You know, where I felt they were on a little bit stronger ground. Um... And then in the after credits, we finally get the explanation of the freaking pee-pee belt thing, which up until then I was like, why did they waste any time on that? That's not a very good joke. Uh, it turns out that uh, Dr. Mrs. realizes that she meant that she meant the initials P and P, not urine. Uh, oh, and by the way, we learned that... Uh, uh, Phantom Limb is, like, not great with bathroom hygiene, which is just you. Um, so, of course he is. Yeah, um... But it means that there is a mole in the guild for the Peril Partnership, which are a rival, uh, organized villainy, uh, labor union, cooperative, I don't know exactly what you would call the guild, other than a guild. Yeah. I think that the Peril Partnership has been referenced earlier in the show a little yes. bit. Yes, uh, they showed up. There was the summit on uh, Gargantua one, one. or two, mm-hmm. um, and they were in the when um, uh, when when we see the guild recruitment video. There's the pie chart without numbers, um, and they are listed as the smallest. Of the uh, villain organizations, I really like the introduction of another player in this dynamic. I think that that's um, a, a good direction for it to ha- to shift into right now. Uh, I also, according to the internet, the the apparel partnership is headquartered in Canada. And if there's one thing we know about things that are headquartered in Canada in a nerdy universe, is They're that evil. it's only going to be even eviler than the version that's stationed in America. Right. So, uh, what did you think of the episode as a whole? You know, it was a very emotional episode. Um, I I actually watched it for the second time after watching the Adventure Time finale, which, of course, meant I was already feeling emotionally exhausted and full of feelings. But having watched it, you know, prior to that as well, I felt like uh, the the, the stuff with um, Dean talking to Helper or was the most meaningful significant piece of it for me and I would have I would love to have that be revisited and the revelation uh, of his dad's being a clone is really important and uh, yeah I think it's a really interesting episode yeah um, I mean it's certainly you know in terms of like the sort of imaginary um, uh, season dynamics that we were talking about this definitely felt like starting the upswing right if the previous episode gave us the new status quo this is the new complication to the status quo. Um, mm-hmm. So I kind of, I guess I would say that I liked the world building a little bit more than the humor in this episode. Like there were some bits that were really funny. Um, other jokes like the pee belt thing just did not land for no. me at all. Um, no. So yeah. So that's, that's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining me. Um, Folks listening to the show, uh, the next thing I have coming up is I'm doing an episode of the podcast about the finale of Adventure Time. Uh, We're taping that tomorrow night, so it should be up right after this episode is up. Um, And uh, with Oliver Sava from the Onion AV Club, he's basically like the guy on the internet for Adventure Time, so I'm super happy to have him join me. And we're also going to have Jameson from Women Write About Comics joining as well. It's going to be great. 
Um, and that's the most uh, recent podcast stuff that we have lined up. Going to have uh, anything. And you can find me online at Twitter all the time. E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. Best place to hit me up. Uh, graphic Policy is, of course, part of graphicpolicy.com. Visit our website for comics, news, reviews, movie reviews, um, as much comics-related and geek space news information and opinion as you can find, and it's really high quality. And where can our listeners find you, Stephen? Uh, they can find me at Twitter, at Stephen Atwell, on Tumblr, and uh, WordPress at Race for the Iron Throne. Um, oh, and my uh, first academic book is coming out tomorrow. So uh, if you go to uh, the University of Pennsylvania Press or uh, Amazon.com and look for the book, uh, People Must Live by Work uh, by Stephen Atwell, uh, you can find my book and please buy it. Congratulations. That's huge. It's Thank such you. an exciting thing. All right. And this time we're going to do it, right? We're right. going to say one, two, two three. three. Go, Go Team, team Venture, Venture Brothers Podcast. Podcast.